Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, with our latest Eyes Tight Shut journey round a world of arts and culture. And this time, sculptor and conservationist Owen Dalton, who's coaxing back to life an Irish rainforest. Jennifer Walsh's latest Things Know Things contemplates deep time at the Museum of Natural History in London. And in New York City, musician Smuda has been capturing in song the libidinal urges stoked by the pandemic. Pandemic. And we begin in the domain of feral cats and rhododendrons in West Cork with artist Owen Dalton. Dalton trained as a sculptor in Carrera, Italy, returning to Ireland to work as a conservator of sculpture and a stone sculptor. In recent years, his focus has shifted to his own home, an old farm that had been lying untended for a century on the windy road between Aries and Castletown Bear on the Bearer Peninsula. Here, in the home of Badgers, Pine Martins and Sparrowhawks, Dalton has been trying to tend back into life what he calls an Irish rainforest. Onya Gallagher went to West Cork for a walk, a listen and a bit of climbing. You know, I don't really have much kind of incentive to go out anywhere else. Yeah. But I will at some stage. I see these woods in some sense as an example of what could be on a much wider more extensive scale, you know. You'd, you'd be looking over, yeah, and there's a kind of a gap in the hills there. Can you see Skellig Michael in the background? You can. It's a kind of a... It's a bit hazy today, mm. but see, this island here, the most obvious one, that's Inish Fernard. My name is Owen Dalton, and I'm from Dublin originally, but I've been living here in the Bear Peninsula for 12 years now. By profession, I'm a sculpture conservator, but my real passion is ecology and in particular native woodland ecology and restoration ecology, how you bring back a rich functioning ecosystem. That's my real thing. That's a chaffinch. We're in a place called Bothagal near Iris in the Bear Peninsula in the southwest of Ireland. And this is basically a farm that I bought 12 years ago, which had been abandoned for a fairly long time previously. There wasn't really very much done with the land for, I think, in and around 100 years before I came. And that had allowed trees to seed into the land, and much of the land turned into a wild native forest over that time. Probably a decade or so before I arrived, feral goats were introduced to the area and Sika deer had been coming in too. And what they had done was that they had arrested all of that process of reversion to native forest by eating any wild native seedlings that were coming up. They'd also opened the way to invasion by non-native species like rhododendron ponticum. So when I came, the place was in a bad state, but it was not nearly as bad as it would have been if all of that had been allowed to continue for another decade or two. So what I did was I started removing the rhododendron and other non-native species from the place, and I also applied for a grant from a scheme called the Non-Native Woodland Scheme to fence the place and fence the feral goats and the, and the sika deer out. The place was fenced, and within several months, the whole place just started to transform, and that process has never really stopped ever since. See all these trees coming up? Those, yeah. are, those are native wild birch, those two. Yeah. That's a native wild sally. 
What I saw first was that native tree seedlings were seeding into the ground all around and so you had new young forests basically starting to form all around in the open areas. In the areas where there was already forest, they started to transform as well because the trees started sending out new growth from their bases. More so than all of that, a whole stratum of the forest, which I thought was completely absent, which is the ground flora, all started to reawaken. And so within the first year or two of the deer fence going up, in spring, you'd just see these carpets of bluebells and wood anemone and lesser celandine. And that was fantastic, absolutely fantastic to see. And it hasn't stopped ever since that's still happening, that process of becoming wilder and more biodiverse and richer and the formation of new woodland in the open areas. It's happening at different speeds, but it's happening everywhere without planting. So they all grew themselves. I did plant one species of tree, actually two, uh, Scots pine, which was an important component of the forest here in prehistory, but there was none left practically at all here pine died out over most of Ireland over millennia probably because it doesn't coppice so if you cut most trees like an oak or a birch or a holly if you cut it and then just leave it and keep browsing and grazing animals away it will grow back into a tree whereas pine won't do that so once you cut it it just dies and that's probably why pine died out over most of Ireland now, are you okay for a bit of climbing? Yeah, we can go the long way. Oh, sure, we'll look, we'll go the long way around. No, I can climb up all good. Are you sure? Yeah, hold right. so. You've actually described this place as um, native rainforest. Yeah. It wouldn't be something that we would think that we'd have in Ireland, is rainforest. Yeah. One of the most exciting things I discovered, I suppose, was that looking into the ecology of the place, it fulfilled all the scientific definitions of rainforest. Primarily that you have a lot of what are called epiphytes, which are plants that grow on trees. And this place is full of epiphytes. But obviously it's not tropical rainforest because we're not in the tropics. This is what's called temperate rainforest, which is actually much rarer. You know, everywhere you go, there's some kind of a sign of that. Human navigation. Yeah, so it was, it's nice. I mean, even though it's rough going, it's nice to have that because you just get away from all of that, yeah. you know? So this interesting old kind of a... So I guess over the next few years and in the future, your plan is to continue the current process that's happening, really. Yeah. I have two things going on here, really. In this area, there's no grazing or browsing whatsoever. And then on the other side of the road, I'm practicing a form of high nature value farming. So I have the Dexter cattle there and they spend most of the summer up the mountain commonage and they're only brought down to that piece of ground in the winter when the leaves are off the trees so they don't impede the natural regeneration of trees and that is allowing nature to come back but in a different way that's where you have farming as a part of the equation whereas here there's no extractive activity whatsoever I don't take anything out of this piece of ground you know you never you're never going to say right I kind of I know all that now you know it's probably like music or something Mm. you know or other forms of art yeah there's no end to it you're you're never going to get to the point where you kind of say well that was interesting but yeah i'll move on now at least i won't anyway you know
restoring and conserving the natural fabric around us yeah. instead of the sculptural. Very much so. There's a big overlap there as well, you know. But nothing I've ever seen or done in, in sculpture or sculpture conservation can compare to this. Owen Dalton there in the rainforests of West Cork and the reporter was Anya Gallagher. the great art of the pandemic, the timeless expression of a unique pivot for human experience. Maybe those kind of eternal verities aren't the target of our where is time, but accidents happen. New York-based musician Smooder offers his services to bands such as TV on the radio, but his solo work explores sexuality with wink-wink artwork, a spin-off fragrance, and music that riffs off the funky greats from Teddy Pendergrass to George Clinton. In these strange times, Smooder's been exploring human relations in the pandemic with a trilogy of singles, Catch It, The Coronavirus Boogie, Anti-Antibody, I Want Your Body, and What's Your vaccination situation, his pandemic threesome, if you will. And he definitely will. My name is Smuda. I live in New York City. Um, I've got a solo career as a singer, songwriter, performer, and then I also have a big life as a trombone player, as a sideman. What's your Yeah, so the Smuda Project, I started maybe 10, 10 or 12 years ago, uh, kind of unexpected. I was thought I was making an instrumental record, and I decided to start putting some lyrics to it. Because I had had some ambitions to maybe write a novel someday, and then I realized that maybe I could just explore some of these themes in songs, which I hadn't heard so much done. Uh, kind of more provocative and dark and weird themes about relationships and the male sex drive and things like that. And so I made a pretty strange record using just a, an old 70s drum machine, an organ, bass, and myself, and trombone, because those are the only things I could play at the time adequately. drum machine was from uh, the same machine that Sly Stone used in the 70s and another one of my favorite artists, Little Beaver, used it. And I love this sound of the maestro rhythm king. Mm -hmm. 
favorite of all time is probably George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic, and I've always loved how they've combined very serious themes with a, a lot of feeling of fun and silliness and weirdness. And I feel like a lot of that, I don't know, I don't, you don't find that that much anymore. There's something very special about George Clinton and that approach. Smuda to me is a lot about combining, like how far can you push the two things of something very serious and something very ridiculous and combine them. So certainly this year that's been a thing with these singles, um, kind of finding where the line is that's too far or not far enough. But it does seem to feel like something big is missing from just the sharing of the music. Because sharing music on the internet is terrible. You know, it doesn't, you don't really get anything from it. You get very momentary feelings of, oh, maybe, you know, this is doing something. But there's nothing like feeling that show energy. I have a friend who lives here in New York City who's uh, made a lot of money selling pheromones on the internet and he's been telling me about this for years and he makes a female version and a male version you know you put it on your neck or on your wrist and it's supposed to uh, attract a mate there's a lot of semi-dubious research about whether pheromones actually work that way for humans but they definitely work for lots of animals and even bacteria birds you know use pheromones to communicate their interests. And so I reached out to him to see if he could make me a version that was uh, unisex, so like a male-female concoction. So yeah, I had that made for the record, and they're called Smoothamones, and you can buy those on the website. Uh, Actually, they, they smell really good, I will vouch for them. And I've sold quite a few of them, and I've had a few people texted me after they started wearing it that they did feel like something was changing. Somebody told me they had a threesome as a result of starting to wear Smoothamone, so that's good propaganda for it. I'm sure other musicians felt this way. It was hard to know what the hell to write music about in the middle of a lockdown. And so I I'm kind of glad, you know, it was a sort of strange thing to do what I did, but I've made what I'm now calling my pandemic threesome of three singles. At the very end of February, when we were still calling it the coronavirus, I made the coronavirus boogie catch it. In anticipation of what the feeling might be that the whole world is sharing this experience whether we can look at it in a positive way, even though it was such a horrific thing. It's like I was hope, you know, there was this hope in the air that maybe the world could come together and rally around and defeat this thing together. I don't think that that really happened. It certainly didn't happen in the States. But So that was sort of this hopeful song. The next one I did was called Anti-Antibody, I Want Your Body, which was just a kind of silly metaphor for once we get the antibodies, how we can reconnect physically to one another. And then this one I just put out last week, uh, What's Your Vaccination Situation? What's your- 
about kind of the hope of reconnecting once everybody's vaccinated. You know, I often thought it's just it's so funny when sex is portrayed in culture, it's either portrayed very, very seriously, like it's the most passionate thing that's ever happened, or it's played for laughs in comedies. And both of those things can be great. But I find, you know, in real life sexual relationships are often a combination of those things. I mean, often, you know, after you sleep with somebody, the first thing you do is laugh about how ridiculous the whole thing was. And the best sex often has a lot, you know, has that warm kind of humor to it and ability to laugh at yourselves. And so, yeah, I just thought it might be fun to explore that artistically as to see is what, what that combination is. And can we laugh at our strange desires? What's your vaccination situation there from Smuda? Ending that report from Louis Scully and S-M-O-O-T-A dot com for all your Smuda needs. Now let's take a moment to hark back to our most recent culture file debate where painter Huey Donahue, academic Rachel O'Dwyer, artist Ruth Catlow, along with our own Professor Ashling Kelleher came together to talk about NFTs, non-fungible tokens, a technology platform and maybe even a belief system that promises to revolutionise, if not art, at least the art market. In this excerpt, the panel chew over how new technology might animate the age-old tango of art and money. There's a platform called Async, which was one of the very early NFT platforms. And I think these are the things that excite me about this space, although there are many things that don't excite me about it. But one of the things that does excite me about it is the fact that artists are starting to make programmable artworks where they are setting the kind of terms and permissions of the relationships with collectors and also collaborative artworks. So they might have a number of artists who are controlling different layers of a digital artwork and then deciding whether the collector can control how the layers move or what happens in the layers. Well, we've been talking so far a lot about art that has been created specifically with these tools or for these tools. But, Huey, you come from a world of galleries and uh, paint on canvases that hangs in spaces. What's uh, lured you at this moment into the world of crypto art? Well, I've, I've never been um, in any way uh, reluctant to try the, the new. Um, my view about it really was that it, I would investigate it and see what, what it offered. 
and what I could un understand about it. I mean, what's fairly obvious in, in one sense is that there's a generational thing. A lot of younger people are looking at screens. That's how they take on information. And um, it's a huge audience. And so artists want to reach an audience. And so it was, uh, it was something I wanted to investigate. But one of the side issues that we're talking about ownership of art and uh, obviously art's relationship to money has always been, um, nobody's ever been able to successfully separate art from money because of its, its rarity. But one of the relationships between ownership is to authenticity. And authenticity is, is something that seems to be key to the conception of blockchain that it's something that can be absolutely verified in terms of time and space, that this is an authentic piece of work by an artist. And uh, I, my view about art is that ultimately it's usually made by individuals and it, uh, it's not something that's either political or social, but it's something that is rare and it's precious. So... My view about the whole NFT thing was one, one of curiosity, really, and I thought we'll embrace it and see what it, what it produces. I guess I'm interested in this idea of authenticity because it seems like the ownership of the NFT itself, the actual deed, the, the, the certificate of ownership, what we're seeing is that ownership is becoming so much more significant than the work itself, whatever form that takes. Well, I don't, I don't know. I think I think ownership, ownership and authenticity are linked. I mean, artists, visual artists, retain the copyright of their their imagery throughout their lifetime. But your work can go can go circulating free from you, accruing value as it moves, and it and it doesn't touch you anymore. Well, once you've made a piece of work, in any case, I mean, my view about it is not a. I don't view it as stock. <laughs> I, I view it as something I I did made, dragged out of myself, and in a way the idea of it being absolutely documented is something that's very, very attractive to me. I mean, if the, if the lost library of Alexandria had been on the blockchain, it would be uh, extraordinary. In a way, we lose works of art constantly. And um, so the idea of, of, of this kind of um, memory which is what my work is about, it interests me. But a lot of the NFTs aren't even, you know, a lot of the, if you, if you, so what you're getting when you buy an NFT is like, it's a URL almost, you know, you're, it's a, it's a piece of code that's pointing to somewhere else on the network, like the pieces themselves, except in a couple of rare cases, actually aren't stored on the blockchain. All you get is sort of a link and what we're seeing, and I see people kind of nodding, what we're seeing is like a lot of those links are already broken. So people own NFTs and there's actually nothing to look at. And, you know, when you buy an NFT, you don't buy any, as you say, you don't buy any copyright over the image. But in a lot of cases, you know, you, you don't even have any kind of manifestation of that image. All you have is a certificate of ownership, which is, I guess, where my question was was coming at, where it seems like ownership itself is 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 all we're interested in now, and that maybe as a ownership as a sort of a financial instrument, as opposed well, to. Well, that's fascinating because I think ownership is not the thing that that interests me. It's authenticity and uh, the idea that you can trace something, as I understand it, on the blockchain. You can trace uh, through time. 
An excerpt from the most recent Culture File debate, and if you missed out on the whole thing, you can now find it on the RTE Lyric FM site, or just Google Culture File Debate NFT, which works too. And finally, this week we are contemplating deep time with Jennifer Walsh. A gradual unpicking of pandemic regulations in London has seen the composer returning tentatively to some old haunts and hanging out with some old friends. Very old friends, as we hear now in her latest Things Know Things. Back in 2018... I wrote an opera about time. I spent the year researching all things time-related, from atomic clocks to black holes. I was particularly obsessed by dinosaurs, and I became a regular at the Natural History Museum here in London. I dropped in almost every week that year, just to look at Sophie the Stegosaurus and my own particular favourite, the Iguanodon. Often, I didn't look at any other exhibits in the museum. I'd simply stand in front of one of the dinosaurs for anywhere from 10 minutes to an hour and think about deep time. I could think much more clearly when I was there. The habit stayed with me, and up until the beginning of the pandemic, I'd nip in to visit the dinosaurs whenever I could. Last week... As the museums finally opened up, I got to go back and visit the Iguanodon for the first time since February 2020. This was a momentous event after so long away. Everything about the trip seemed both the same and also oddly different. The Piccadilly line isn't stopping at South Kensington for the next year, so I had to get the central there. The pedestrian subway from the tube station to the museums is closed, so I had to walk on the street. And no more strolling past the museum guards with a smile. I needed a mask, a QR code and a timed entry ticket. Nevertheless, as I approached the museum, it felt like coming home. I was back. At last, after this terrible year, back at the NHM, back with the dinosaurs. A wave of emotion began building in me, and as we were processed through the one-way system and the socially distanced queue and the hand sanitizer application, I felt surges of excitement and also sadness building and building in me until finally I entered Hintzy Hall and saw the Iguanodon for the first time and I looked up at the dinosaur after so long with tears now running down my face and I swear, I swear to God I heard it say whatever. The Iguanodon peered down at me, weeping over the grief and stress and anxiety of the last 15 months, and it said, You haven't been here in a year. I'm 140 million years old. A year is nothing. Drop in the ocean. And in that moment, I felt the soothing, grounding presence of something vastly bigger than me. I felt the paradoxical comfort of feeling no more than a momentary eddy, a tiny blip in something infinite. I stood 
for a long while, breathing with the iguanodon, and I began to feel my mind clear. I felt calmer than I had in months. This is what natural history museums can do. I dried my eyes and turned my gaze to the Imalak meteorite nearby. I should go visit that next time, I thought. It's four and a half billion years old. It'll have a thing or two to say. Jennifer Walsh there visiting the Iguanodon and bringing to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more eyeballing the ancestors next Saturday tea time. Till then, bye now.